This is Brett. And this is Sean. And, and this, this is, is bonus, bonus BS. And I, we can't do that right at all. We should f- just put that in the show right there. All right, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Bonus BS, a supplemental show to Gaming and BS podcast, where we cover interviews and other such topics not found in our weekly episodes. Enjoy. The following recording takes place at GameholeCon 2016, a gaming convention held in Madison, Wisconsin in November and features Mike Merles, Chris Perkins, and Jeremy Crawford from Wizards of the Coast, where they oversee the design, development, and production of the popular role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. We extend a sincere thank you to Mike, Chris, Jeremy, and Wizards of the Coast for allowing us to bring this to you. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure you were awake. <laughs> okay, so uh, welcome everyone. This is uh, our Dungeons and Dragons panel. Uh, I'm Mike Merles. I am the senior designer for the creative team on D&D. And with me are two other gentlemen from Wizards of the Coast. You guys want to introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Chris Perkins. I'm the principal story designer for D&D. And I'm Jeremy Crawford. I'm the lead rules developer for D&D as well as its managing editor. So to give you a sense of our roles, uh, I basically uh, manage the team. And uh, I help set the, cre- the, cre- the overall strate- strategic direction of where we're going with D&D. Uh, Chris is in charge of creating the annual stories that we feature. So Storm King's Thunder, which uh, released uh, about six weeks ago now. Um, that was Chris. Uh, he's in charge of driving all that and how it relates to everything else relating to the realms in general and our other settings. And Jeremy handles the development of the rules mechanics, uh, making sure that the mechanics we're producing are consistent with the entirety of Fifth Ed and that are working within the bounds of how the system functions. Uh, a lot of times I, I will do rules design, but we also work with freelancers who do that. So essentially Jeremy Shepard's content, for instance, for Volo's Guide to Monsters, which just released today at your local Wizards Play Network stores, where they have the take part in early release. Right um, they should have that. They should also have the <laughs> limited edition uh, covers. I always get the Hydro 74. Uh, so that's a special limited edition you can only get at game stores. Uh, so in that case, Jeremy would handle a lot of the mechanical design for the new races, for the new monsters, where Chris would be involved in that first chapter, the overall lore of monsters, and making sure that's consistent with where, where we want to go with D&D stories. My role in that was, was essentially deciding, hey, let's do a book called Volo's Guide to Monsters, and here's how it'll fit in. Uh, and if you've looked at the book, what you may have noticed is this kind of takes the role of what a monster manual would have been in prior editions, uh, but there's a lot more lore and story. Uh, and that's one of the big elements we've added to 5th edition is thinking a lot more in terms of role-playing and storytelling and not just say Mind Flayers as a stat block or a CR8 creature, say they were in 3.5, but thinking them more as what's the psychology of a Mind Flayer? What's their culture? What are they like as an NPC, as a character you might talk to or deal with rather than just as a monster you might fight? So that's really reflecting a lot of the the big picture decisions we'd make about D&D and, and how we want to develop things for it. It also reflects, if you've been following the game for, for the past few years, uh, kind of a shift we've made. Uh, we release far fewer books per year. We used to do like one to four a month, and now we do about one every four months. Uh, and a lot of that comes with this idea of making the books much bigger events uh, and also thinking of them more as puzzle pieces that as you add each book and you put them all side by side, there's a coherent picture that, that emerges. 
Uh, and which requires a lot more planning on our part, and a lot more forethought of what is the role of this product. It's not just another monster manual with monster stats. It's a piece of the broader puzzle that helps sort of shed light on what is D&D and what exists within D&D. And what does that mean for storytelling, both the stories you tell and the stories that we tell through things like Storm King's Thunder or through licensed products like the Neverwinter MMO uh, you know, other, other, and other partners that we work with. So there's been a lot of change in D&D in the past few years of the launch of 5th edition. And now we've kind of hit, uh, I'm going to say this, and I'm sure something like, well, we have this great new thing we want to do. But we sort of hit a tempo that we're sort of following up on now, you know, as we move forward into the future. But one of our big goals every year is to say, okay, here's what we're doing in 2017. For next year, we always want to make, we always want to think about what can we do to top what we did last year. You know, always telling stories that are interesting and exciting uh, and always thinking we have to clear the bar that we set last year to keep everyone engaged, to keep people thinking about D&D, thinking about what makes the game interesting. And uh, and then for us, the mercenary of it, making, you know, getting you guys to buy more books because <laughs> that's always something that's good for us. The um, So that, that's kind of where we are right now. Now, to put, to put things right up front. Uh, if you're a longtime fan, you may be used to, we used to announce books like 12 to 18 months ahead of time. We don't do that anymore. So right now we're in a little bit dead spot. We don't have any new product to announce. So if anyone has a question about an upcoming product, like what are we going to do? The answer is we can't tell you. So just to set those up front, uh, we're not going to be spoiling uh, any new products. We won't be doing that actually for quite some time. Uh, if you remember not to like, you know, not to say we're going to do this this year, but you think well, last year we didn't we did not announce our f- first book of 2016 until I think it was January was when we announced Curse of Strahd. Yeah. So it's we're still a f- few months away from talking about the next product. Uh, anything you may have seen on Amazon that's just pure lies and propaganda. Just ignore <laughs> it. The uh, but yeah. So um, so what I thought I'd start with. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about um, Volos and? Um, I mean, we had the book right up there uh, and your work on it and anything that we thought was interesting about Volos that you'd want to share with the audience. Anyone want to jump in? Sure. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Water. Right. Thank you. Thank you. So I was the lead designer on the Monster Manual and uh, worked very closely with Mike and a number of other people in the department to redefine the process by which we create those kinds of books. And it starts with us first uh, looking at the great number of monsters that have been created in the game over several of editions and uh, picking ones that we think, based on our feedback with fans, based on our own preferences as well, that we think are going to resonate, that have great story in them that we want to bring out. And then we sit down and we basically brainstorm lists of these monsters and winnow it down until we have the ones that we want to update and or create from scratch. And then we have this process called the white paper process. And what that is, is we do a one-page document on each monster that tries to encapsulate the essence of its story and where it fits in our worlds. And those are assigned out to different people. Mike writes some, I write some, we have other staff members who do it. And then we have meetings to basically walk through those white papers and see whether or not we hit the mark. If there's anything in past lore or past editions about that monster that might be worth trumpeting, like for instance, when we did the Giants for the Monster Manual, we discovered this beautiful plum in a second edition product called Giant Craft having to do with the Giants ordning, the structure that they have. When we found that, we knew we wanted to build that into the white sheet. 
And so we did. And uh, we followed the same process with the Volos Guide because it was very successful for us on the Monster Manual. Now, the Volos Guide to Monsters has more than just monsters in it, as Mike has said. Uh, but a large chunk of the book is Monster Manual-style entries. And that's where most of my attention on the project was focused. Uh, the other two components of the book are uh, monstrous races that you can play and then uh, detailed lore on some of D&D's most iconic creatures. Uh, but the Monster Manual Monsters is the part that I had the most to do with. And after doing several of these white papers, I then got pulled off to work on Storm King's Thunder and an unnamed 2017 product and did not come back to the project until it landed in Jeremy's lap for rules development. And then I hopped back in and was basically sort of riding on the saddle behind Jeremy, uh, helping to catch stuff yeah. uh, as it fell through the air. Um, but and so a lot of my work on the book ended up being developmental or end-of-book stuff, cleanup, or we have a space to fill because the art didn't take up as much room as we thought, so we need a bit more text. Or we have too much text in this entry, we need to chop stuff out, but we don't want to lose anything that's really important. And so I would come in and help make those decisions with Jeremy's um, approval, and with Mike's as well. Yeah, the... With with all of our books, and, and so this was true for Volo's Guide as well, uh, I'm always the guy basically with my arms out ready to catch it as all of the disparate pieces start coming together. Because you'll see in many of our books that we have many designers working on them, and someone has to tile that stuff together. And so that's my job. Uh, not only on the rules side, uh, but also even the story material. I have to make sure that every aspect of the product is actually speaking to every other aspect of the product so that it's a coherent whole, uh, so that all of these uh, different threads that come in get woven into what hopes appears to you as a, a cohesive tapestry when you get the final book. Uh, now, amid all of that weaving, my primary focus, as Mike mentioned before, is making sure that the game material actually works, uh, that it works within the context of that book itself, but that also it works with the game as a whole. Now, sometimes on the books, I will also uh, be involved at the very beginning. And with Volo's Guide, one of my favorite parts of the whole process was uh, when we had our voting meetings on yeah. what monsters were actually <laughs> going to be in this book. So, uh, Mike, Chris, and I, and Chris Lindsay, who's at the back of the room, uh, we we might have had one or two other people from the department I in think, that meeting. I think Adam and Richard Matt. were there, too. Yeah, Adam and Richard, uh, who are on our story and Matt, team. And Matt was there, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it was a pretty big group. Uh, for the monsters that ended up in this book, we actually had way more monsters, uh, given the rich history of the game in monsters, that we could have put in this book. You know, as we looked back at the previous four editions, as well as thinking about new monsters we might want to design, as well as thinking about monsters in folklore that maybe have never gotten a full shake in D&D, we thought, oh, God, there are all these monsters we want to put in this book. So what we did is we all got votes, and we each wrote monster names on uh, little post-its and put them up on the whiteboard, and... Basically, monsters that got a bunch of votes were pretty much guaranteed to go into the book. Like if a yeah. bunch of us said, oh, we all want the Kyrin in this book, well, the Kyrin was going to be in the book. But we all also had a few were like, we were the only ones who wanted them. You know, that, that monster <laughs> that got the one vote. So, so a bunch of those got flushed. 
But Mike had the had the great idea of each person gets to have a few where they just plant their. One. Fl- well, was it one? It was just one. If I just gave you one. three, then it would have been the entire book. So there I guess it was one. just I. I you can might, be a champion of one monster, yeah. and that will get in the book. I, so yeah. I, I I remember it as more simply because so many of the monsters I wanted did make it into the book, so I felt like oh, well, you have good taste in monsters. Yeah, guess I have good so taste. So what, what was your one? Do you remember? I don't remember which one was my one. Chris, I do you remember what your one? Yes, was? Yes, I do. It was, the, it was the Nilbog. Ah, oh, the Nilbog. No. Simply no. Chris, and then Chris Lindsay in the back. His was the um, the the, the, the grung, the frog oh, people. I remember what mine was. What was yours? The Woodwood. Woodwood. How yes. much wood would wood wood wood? Wood wood could wood wood. Oh you know, <laughs> gosh! Sold this one. I, I, I did not give myself a vote because I would have put in the Norker and everyone would have attacked me. So no, I, I said I head. said the Norker would be fine with me. There were so many negative votes, but I didn't want to be the guy. Yeah. I was like, oh, now I'm gonna give myself five. Votes. Oh, that's right, because I think we also had. Did we also have votes of monsters we did not want? Oh to? yeah. So so now to, to give you a context, what it started with was. I didn't let everyone just put down any monster. We started with the monsters that we knew based on what data we had were the most popular monsters not yet published. So we couldn't just go and make up whatever loopy thing we wanted. Uh, And so, yeah, so the way it would work is everyone got to vote. You had five points to spend on monsters you wanted to keep, five points on monsters you wanted to kill and not have in the book. And then once we did that, everyone was allowed to save one monster that was going to be killed. So... Yeah, and so that's how we ended up with with the list of monsters. But it is, at the end of the day, driven by, well, here are the monsters that we think slash know people want to see in 5th Ed. So that was a combination of uh, going through uh, older monster manuals and uh, looking at actually uh, forum posts on whatever. If you made a list at some point of monsters I wish were in the monster manual, we have I have logged that. Like I went through and searched all the forums, grabbed all the lists, dumped them in. So now you can't now go and do it because it's too late. I already have the data. But the um, but yeah. So whether it was a Reddit thread, N World, uh, the Wizards forums at the time, I think, or anywhere else, if I could find an RPG community where someone was like, "Here are the monsters that are missing from Fifth Ed that I need," uh, we tried to collect that. And I think we also did some of our surveys. We may have. I can't remember if we ever actually asked monsters. It's kind of unwieldy, but I think we tried. Um, so yeah, that's kind of driven by here's what people want, and then here's from that, how do we pick? Well, we'll just I'll let people vote. The um, and it, I mean, I, 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 the one thing that I think that I regret a little bit about, we don't have a lot of high CR monsters right now in the game. In Volos, we didn't set out saying, "Hey, let's solve that," because I think that'd be a very different looking product. Um, but it is something that we know is an issue. It's kind of a tug tug of war between. Well, if people are saying, "Hey, we really want the um, the the Nilbog." We didn't want to then say, okay, well, let's somehow find a way to make Nilbog CR15. <laughs> you know, so at this stage for the first sort of monster expansion, our idea was let's just take the classic monsters people are missing that we just didn't have space for in the monster manual or time to get to. And then I think the next phase, you know, kind of thinking of that idea, it's a puzzle we're building so slowly over time. We just say, okay, now what can we do to focus more on high CR monsters? The challenge we have there is there actually aren't a lot of them that have much traction in the game. Um, if you look at D&D historically, most people play from levels 1 to 10, and so they're not really getting the chance to use those, use those high-powered monsters. Uh, and so therefore, therefore, since people aren't using them too often, not many of them are very iconic. So it's a little riskier, and it's a bit harder to really project, like, what is it that, that will resonate and that people will be excited about? Even if you look back over the additions, things like Mind Flayers and Beholders, they are more in that mid-level range. You, know, you think, oh, a Mind Flayer is a good, you know, it's a good boss monster for a campaign. Uh, it's like around like a level 8 to 12 threat that you'd face. It's not the stuff that's level 20, 
that tends to be more things like the tar ask, where it's like, oh, people know about it because it's so powerful, but it doesn't see use in play that often because not too many groups reach level 20. Uh, now, if you're curious, why is that? Typically, what we find is just people, the amount of time they can devote to a campaign doesn't allow them to get there. So people want to play those levels. There's definitely a desire. It just seems like in most cases, there's just real world, you know, things intrude. Your group breaks up. The DM doesn't have time to prep anymore. The school semester ends, things like that. So that's something we're looking at, but it's going to require a lot more work on our end because it's going to require us looking and doing more lore work and doing more monster invention rather than updates. So, which is a very distinctly different process. Right. And, 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 sorry. And, and also the, Looking back at the history of the game, uh, going all the way back to first edition, usually how D&D has handled high-level play is actually pushing into the realm of basically warfare. Uh, the assumption early on in the game's history is that when you get to high level, it isn't that your battles are now one big guy, unless it's a dragon. Uh, it's really, no, now you're fighting a hundred orcs uh, instead of uh, ten or five or two depending on uh, yeah. how low level you are. Uh, now, we all know, of course, once you get up to numbers that high, the game can really bog down. I mean, but this is why we also have uh, mob rules in the Dungeon Master's Guide to try to help mitigate the complexity of running uh, a battle with that many combatants. Uh, but speaking to, again, what Mike was saying, uh, the, the history of the game uh, has never actually supported having a, a vast array of, of high CR creatures. Yeah. Or at least ones that have stuck with people. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Now, and I think the overall process we use for the monsters is a pretty good example of how I like to move things forward with an RPG book, where it starts by saying, what do we see that, that you guys want? And then starting from there, then we pick and choose what we can feature in a book. Uh, because obviously, it's something we've really made a central pillar of how we're operating with the role-playing game, starting with the fifth ed playtest, where... For us, it really is, we're here as a service organization. We're here to make your campaigns easier to run. We're here to give you the resources you need to have fun playing D&D. Now, obviously, we have our stories to tell, but we want to make sure it's stuff that's going to resonate with your understanding of D&D and what you find interesting. And that's really the, the starting point for, for any product we do like this is based on that. Like, what's interesting to you? What are you looking forward to? What do you need for your games? And And... Uh, an example of us listening and providing service uh, when you know we hear you saying as DMs, hey, we need X for our campaigns to make them easier. Uh, we added to Volo's uh, uh, a bit late in the process, actually, an, an appendix of NPCs. Uh, because the feedback we've gotten about the Monster Manual is that DMs find the NPC appendix to be very useful. Uh, but we'd also been getting the feedback that people would like NPCs uh, that are higher CR. Yeah. And so we made sure that uh, many of the NPCs who appear in the new NPC appendix in Volo's Guide tend to have higher uh, challenge ratings than the NPCs in the Monster Manual. And so they're really meant to complement uh, the NPCs that you have in that other book. Yeah, and that was an area where we felt, okay, we can just build the stat block. You, know, you don't have the story con consideration of like, well, we all know that, you know, a... Um, a maw demon is this power level, and suddenly it's you know quintupled in that level. Whereas if we're making an archmage stat block or a you know a, a, a commander type fighter, you know we can just make that higher CR and it works. So uh, that that's more the monster section for the playable races section. Uh, I did a lot of the design work on that, uh, working with Jeremy. And one of the big approaches we have for doing new character races is to think of the race as a stereotype. So when you think of 
and, and a, a, a stereotype that is new and interesting. So when you think of the classic fantasy races, elves and dwarves, they have a lot of history behind them. Where you know every dwarf speaks with, with a Scottish accent. Why? Well, they just do, right? Like that's you know, Lord of the Rings movies, or whatever reason. It's always you know, or maybe it's a German accent if that's the way you want to take your campaign. The uh, elves are always haughty and powerful, and everything they do is just beautiful. You know, things like that. Because we have so much pop culture behind that, whether it's generated by D and D or other fantasy movies, fantasy novels. As a player, you have a role sort of pre-built for you. So what we did with the new uh, playable races in the book. Uh, especially the ones, uh, the non-monstrous ones, things like the, the Triton or the Tabaxi, uh, was to think of what is the stereotypical version of this race and how is it different and distinct from everything else we've done, and then how can we make it a fun role to play? So one of my favorite comments, and well, this, this might be horrifying or, 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 or exciting depending on your point of view, was uh, our, our, our staff artist when he was reading the, the Tabaxi description was like, you basically made Kender Cats. And it's like, yes, like this is what they are. They are tabaxi are basically cats. They are humanoid cats, literally, right? They're curious. They're kind of flighty. They like picking up shiny stuff and playing with it. And you can never really predict what they're going to do next. And that was a very consciously, conscious decision to say, look, if, if you're the type of person who wants to play a cat humanoid, you probably like cats and you probably like how they act. And you probably kind of want to act that way in your, in your D&D game. And in some ways, it's sort of consciously deciding. And if you don't like that, then you're not going to like this, and that's okay. Because I'm not trying to make a cat folk type race that anyone would want to play. I'm trying to make a cat race that if you like cats and like the idea of playing an anthropomorphic feline, you're going to be excited about playing it, because that's who we're aiming it at. Uh, so the races we built are really aimed at these very distinct roles. And if, if someone said, I loved all the races, I mean, that'd be great, but that wasn't the design intent. The idea behind it is you might find one or two races, you go, oh, I really want to play a character, yeah, I really want to play a Triton. That sounds like fun. I really want to play a Kenku, but I'd never want to play a Goliath or I'd never want to play, you know, a Tabaxi. That's just, uh, who wants to play that, right? And that's fine. That's kind of the, the intent because we see race in terms of finding your character as something that's very foundational. And unlike a character class, we think, you know what, a character class can be very flexible. If you want to play a sorcerer, you can play a dragon sorcerer and you're more tougher, or you can play a, a, a wild mage and that's more chaotic. Um, where you know, eventually you know, you'll find something you'll like in that class. Races are more exclusionary. We sort of assume like you know, either you like it or you don't. And it's okay if you don't because there's other races you can play. And that's kind of driven by this idea, you know, our, our feeling that people generally uh, settle on a few races they like to play. That you might find someone's, oh, I played every single class. But finding somebody who said, oh, I played every single race, it's not as, as, as common. I think race is much more, here's how I like to play D&D. So I'll pick a race that fits with that. The, um, so that was really the design intent was to not just make, oh, I, I, you will love all these races. It's more, they're much more specialized. Uh, it's also why I feel like in terms of, you know, you think the tapestry we're weaving of the game, we'll probably end up with a lot more races than we would classes, simply because they are, again, much more exclusionary. You might just find there's, there's 30 races I can pick from, though that's way too many. But you can imagine that world. But I only really like five or six of them, you know, because this is just how I like to play D&D and here's how I approach the game. The um, So it was much more – and also if you look through the text, we try to present them much more as role-playing opportunities. I mean obviously there's mechanics there. You need the mechanics. Otherwise, it's not functional. But things like Tabaxi have a table of quirks you can roll on or pick from or invent. You know, things like that. Uh, Tritons have a very distinct point of view. You know, and for our, from our standpoint, we're more willing to kind of lay down – clearer narrative roles for these races because we assume if you don't like it or in your campaign it's different well you can just change it you're going to change it anyway so but we're defaulting more to be specific with races 
because we just figure if you're that creative style DM, world building DM, you're just going to take the, that stat block and then you're going to put your own story around it. If you're not, well, then we have a story for you that you can use, that you can build off of. Um, but we don't want to be very bland or generic because in the DM who wants something that's more prefab, well, the, the, we're not helping that, that DM at all. So it's a bit more pres- uh, prescriptive in the race, and it's a bit more aiming at thinking this is a role you're playing rather than a mechanical bundle that's modifying your class. And, and one of our core assumptions in D&D when it comes to race is that the default, ultimately flexible race is human. Yeah. Uh, and so for us, anytime we approach a non-human race, the goal is for it to not only be very distinctive and non-human, but as Mike said, fulfill a very particular story and personality role. Uh, the, the non-human races are by design more narrow in terms of their feel than human. Because again, the role in the game is for the human is they are, they are mm-hmm. the everyman. They are, they are the race that can have any personality, yeah. follow any path. Uh, and it's also one of the reasons why in our settings, of all of the civilized races, humans are always assumed to be the most numerous because they are the most adaptable. Uh, the other races uh, are so specialized that that actually results in them being more rare. Yeah. And you also notice when you read through the races, I think it's a good way. It reflects well how we use the Forgotten Realms. So a lot of DMs feel like, well, I have my own setting, so I don't want any realms lore. Uh, I want it to be more generic. But So what we try to do, for instance, if you take the Tritons, their background is based on uh, the Mel Odom's uh, Threat from the Sea trilogy from around like maybe 16 years ago now. And there was an RPG supplement whose name I'm forgetting. It wasn't. The, I don't think it was the Sea of Fallen Stars supplement for the realms. But uh, there was basically a source work we did on like, you know, here are the, 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 the seas of the realms and here's who lives in them. Um, so rather than use a lot of proper names, what we did was just take this idea of the Tritons as the protectors of the of the, the deepest ocean depths and avoid using proper names of the realms, but use that concept to then describe the Tritons and how they operate and then fill in some details so it kind of fits in with, with core D&D. Um, but that using inspiration. The, the Tabaxi, uh, so since they are from... Um, uh, Mastika in the realms, <laughs> they have sort of Aztec-inspired names. And we talk about, oh, they're from this distant tropical realm. So we describe Mastika, but we don't say Mastika and then tie it to a lot of proper names. We just say, no, they're, they're from the far west, this kind of mysterious tropical realm. It's, you know, these interesting gods and, and some weird events have taken place there. And they have names that are this very specific pattern where if you know, like, you know, sort of Aztec culture, oh, these are kind of look like they're inspired by, you know, Mesoamerican ancient civilizations. Um, and then you could, if you know the realms, you can put two and two together and say, oh, you're talking about Mastika. Here's how this fits together. But we try to avoid – now, having said that, I'm sure I dropped a proper name in there somewhere because that's just what I do. I'm always contradicting myself. But the idea is <laughs> to not hit you over the head with it, where if you know the realms, you'll recognize it. If you don't know the realms, hopefully you find it inspiring and think, oh, that's kind of fun. It's a, it's a cat folk style race, but they have this sort of Aztec inspiration for their culture. So that's something I can really work with, make them distinct. Or again, if you're the homebrew DM – You'll just take those stats and say, I'm going to do whatever I want with this, and here's my backstory for this race. The, um, we also have uh, stats for things like goblins and orcs. Um, that's actually kind of an interesting we, – we added uh, stat penalties for those guys. It's the first time we've done that with a race in 5th Ed. Uh, and that was a very conscious decision on our part to sort of capture something like a kobold uh, – I mean, kobolds are pathetic, right? Like, you can stomp through tons of them. They're the classic. That's the first monster you fight in D&D. So it's really just kind of thinking, we don't consider those races to be on the same level as the other playable races because they are typically monstrous enemies. 
So we were willing to take some like the orcs get an intelligence penalty because we just want no orcs are not the bell curve of orc intelligence is lags behind a bit compared to say elves or dwarves. The um, that's just kind of part of who they are. That's why I have a god bag true who just you know is very just straightforward and batter through everything because that's just part of what orcs are in D anD D. And same for kobolds, they're just kind of weak and pathetic. So they are kind of not quite on the same level playing field as, as the other uh, options in the game. And and as Mike said, that was a very conscious decision of ours. The those monstrous races in the race chapter are in a section on their own. Uh, you know, the Triton, the Kenku, the Tabaxi, and others, the, the Asimar, uh, they're all presented up front uh, in the same way we present races like the uh, elves and dwarves uh, and others in the player's handbook. But the monstrous races are in the back of that section, and basically there's a blinking sign at the front that says, enter here only if your DM says you can. Yeah. Uh, because... Uh, we take story uh, very seriously uh, in the game because for us, as we've, as we've said many times over the past few years, story is our guiding star uh, in D&D. And while we think it's awesome for people to be able to play an orc or a kobold or a goblin if, if that's what you, know, you want to do and it's appropriate for your campaign, at the same time we want it to be true to the overall story that D&D tells about these species and about their relationships to each other uh, and about the conflicts they have with each other. And so, yeah, we made the decision in a very kind of old-school way uh, for a few of the races to bring back stat penalties. Again, only for those monstrous races that are in the, you know, uh, beware ye who enter here section. Now, I'm going to put Chris Lindsay in the spot. He's in the back of the room. Chris, can uh, are those races available for play in Adventures League? Yes, so so we are. They are balanced, though. We are mechanically. They're all sound. So if you want to play an Orc in Adventures League, you can. So that's all. You still have to follow the Player's Handbook plus one of the resource rule, but they are all, all available for Adventures League. So the um, I want to turn and talk about the, the front part of the book, uh, which is my personal favorite part, uh, where we delve into uh, a number of monsters' uh, culture and psychology. So kind of tying back to what Jeremy was talking about, about story is what drives everything. Um, what we decided, what we wanted to do was take a few iconic monsters like beholders and mind flayers and really delve into like what makes them tick. So the idea was, and I always like to use the mind flayers as the example. Cause when you think of mind flayers, the average mind flayer is as smart as the smartest human in the world. And that's just the average. That's the middle of their bell curve. Right. And they used to have this massive world spanning empire, but that all got destroyed by their slaves uh, who are, you know, like human level intelligence rather than mind flayer level intelligence. And they've now been driven underground into the Underdark where they hide because if they poke their tentacled heads up, uh, Githyanki or Githzerai come along who've sworn to, to, to commit genocide against this race and kill them all. Um, or human adventurers come across them and kill them all. And so a lot of what I, what I wanted to do with this section was say, look, if you're the smartest person on the planet, everyone hates you to the point where you've been forced to hide underground and you used to rule the entire cosmos and now you don't because these – goofy hairless apes somehow overcame your godlike intellect what would that make you feel like you know and it's just like really trying to think like what is the culture what's the motivation what's the psychology behind these guys and you know really thinking like what is it what are they up to you know asking a lot of the why questions and that's what we aimed it to hit on in here and the idea we came up with well mind flayers they're they're plotting endlessly essentially for their manhattan project they're trying to figure out what's the equivalent of the atomic bomb that we can unleash on the surface world and swiftly conquer it. 
you know, and that's essentially they are, you can think of each Mindflayer outpost as an independent research station that's trying to find a way to cure the cosmos of this awful humanoid, you know, uh, plague that's overrun it. And then on top of that, you have these mind flayers who are super intelligent. They're essentially slaves to the uh, elder brains that run each colony. An elder brain demands and exerts absolute control over mind flayer. So not only do you have this godlike intellect and you've been beaten by these, you know, savage, you know, hairless apes, but then there's this giant brain that tells you what mm. to do. And if it tells you to do something, you have to do it. And just finding that to be like a really interesting place to put, you know, for, for a character you know, and that's really what we're thinking of is how do we betray these monsters as characters, as people you might talk to, not just fight, but think of their motivations. Why do they act the way they do? How does that shape their culture? And how does that shape how they function in the world of D&D? &D? Yeah, so that's where a lot of the stuff you'll find in there. It talks about their culture. It talks about how they think. Uh, a lot of things like tables for uh, – for traits and flaws, like a lot of the stuff that your background gives you for your character, we have tables for that stuff for these creatures. Um, and do, do you want to talk about the hags? Because that's something which we kind of added. Like we hit the, the classics and we said, let's add hags because we never really talked about hags in detail before in D&D. Uh, part of that is because I'm always the guy saying we need more hag stuff in the game. Uh, uh, because I, they, they are one of the main villain groups I have used in my home campaign for decades. So I'm always, more hags, more hags. Part of that, though, is also they are such a rich uh, uh, villain group uh, because, like Mind Flayers, they're brilliant, they're ancient, uh, they're powerful, but they're often quirky and they can often be very darkly funny. Uh, so there's a lot of personality for us to delve in there. And there's also a rich well of folklore from the real world uh, for us to delve into. So in in the first part of the book, we, we added this section on hags, and we delve into, as we do with the mind flayers and other creatures, we delve into what do their layers look like? Uh, what are their... Uh, they're fanciful vehicles that they go around in because hags uh, in real-world folklore often go around not only on brooms, as is uh, fairly typical in Northern American folklore, but often in big bowls, you know, right, you know, riding around on skulls that that float. Um, so we even we even have a painting in here of some of their their wacky vehicles. Uh, we also talk about how they are often. Uh, beings uh, not meant for you to fight uh, because as as wicked as hags can be they are also cunning and brilliant and they don't want to die uh, that's something that's a theme we come back to quite a bit is uh, many of our more uh, intelligent monsters in the game uh, if they have their druthers they're not just going to lay down and die for you know the the next adventurers group that that shows up uh, many hags, and again, this this is uh, leaning very heavily on real world folklore, are are very happy to bargain with people, uh, particularly because they like to create bargains where they come out ahead or they somehow trick you. And so we delve into that as well. The idea being here that you could build an entire campaign just based on the machinations of a coven of hags. And speaking of covens, we also go into different types of covens and covens that might have different spell lists than the spell lists you have in the monster manual. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of toys uh, to play with here, not just with the hags, but with each of the monster groups that we explore so that you can take the material you have in the monster manual and make it even richer and make it even deeper. And again, potentially build an entire campaign around it. 
Yeah, one of the best things about the first chapter of the book is it's just full of DM toys. A DM who reads that chapter is just going to be bombarded with adventure ideas. Uh, and uh, from my point of view, all the books that we release in the line in, help us inform what the future stories are going to be, that everything is interconnected in 5th edition D&D. So I, I said, I've said before, and I'll say again, that if you want to sort of think about where D&D is going story-wise, just take a look at the core rule books because all of the clues are there. All of the clues to the t stories we're going to tell in the future were planted in those three books. And when we add a book like Volo's Guide to the Mix, you can expect that future stories are going to tap into that as well. And they do. Yeah, even, even the hag material in Volo's Guide builds on material that we included in the monster manual, but really only in sort of a, a hinting way. Yeah. Uh, like in, in the monster manual with hags, we refer to, I believe at least at one point, to a hag or two with, uh, with the title Auntie. Well, in, in Volo's Guide, we actually talk about what does it mean as a hag to be an auntie versus a grandmother, uh, that this is actually a sign of power among hags. And mortals may call them anything they want, but among hags, these titles have an ancient meaning. And so it was a sort of a, a thing we just say in passing in the Monster Manual, but then in a book like Volo's Guide, we can dig deeper and say, this is what we actually meant there in that book yeah. a couple of years ago, where we, we said this thing as you were driving by. Yeah. And there's a lot of pieces as we're sort of doing our world building, where we'll give you glimpses of what's to come or how things work in the books, but not necessarily just on the nose. So if you read all the fey creatures, read their entries in Volos, you start to get a sense of how the fey wild operates. We talk about how a red cap comes into being or what something like a mean lock, which was not fey, but is now we've kind of, I don't know if it's type is fey, but it's connected to the fey wild now. Um, you can see how those things start to come into being and what they mean cosmologically for the world. We don't come right out and just explain, like, here's the physics of what's happening, but there's a consistency there that we're laying down because while we're showing you pieces of the bigger picture, like, we have the bigger picture. We know where it's going. And there's a lot of discussions of things like the Feywild, the Shadowfell, how those relate to the material plane that we're working out and are influencing creatures that we're, we're releasing or other pieces that we're releasing, but we're not necessarily giving you the full picture yet. Well, and, and part of that is going all the way back to the core books. We view D&D &D and its multiverse as a cohesive whole. And so rather than segmenting off different parts of the multiverse and saying, all right, we're not going to talk about that until we have an entire book just about that. Instead, our approach has been, you know, we're building an entire world and world by world, I mean an entire multiverse with different worlds in it. And we're going to actually talk about that in that whole uh, whenever we can in all of our products because we view it as one giant setting. Uh, and so that's why you, you can go to bits of the player's handbook, bits of the dungeon master's guide, uh, bits of the monster manual, now bits of Volos, and you're going to get information about different planes of existence. You're going to get information about how the different uh, species interrelate how yeah, yeah. Their, their origin stories. Uh, Pass the book down to me. Uh -huh. You're, you're going to learn, uh, even in Volo's Guide, as in the core books, even about the gods, uh, because we can't talk about some of these species without talking about the deities who spawned them. Uh, speaking also of interrelation, our, our most recent uh, epic adventure, of, obviously, was Storm King's Thunder. 
If you get Volo's guide, one of the monster groups that's featured are giants. And you'll find that there were things uh, as, as rich as Storm King's Thunder is uh, and all that it has to say about giants. You'll see there also in that adventure there were certain things said about giants in passing that are now delved into more deeply in Volo's guide. Yeah, so there's elements here in the orcs. Uh, we talk about, you know, why is it that the orcs hate elves and dwarves? We, we talk a little bit about how basically the orcs feel, the grooms feel spurned by the other races, which then leads another, to the question of like, well, what actually happened? Did, did Morden and Corallon kind of get together and decide to like hose grooms? Like maybe, maybe not. If we get to telling you about that story, then that, well, that's something which kind of hints at what may have happened, that mythological underpinning. And then it prompts a question, well, if Morden and Corallon got together, why do elves and dwarves have some sort of enmity between them? It's not open warfare, but there's a rivalry there. What does that mean? What does that come from? And that's what spurs a lot of our storytelling is thinking, well, why did this happen this way? And what, what's the reason behind it? And what I really like to do is, is put a character behind it, right? It's not just some, oh, a comet hit it or some force of nature. It's like, no, this deity decided to do this or was trying to be tricksy or betrayed someone or there's an unexpected alliance that formed or things like that. So much more driven by characters that then get reflected in the culture that that spawns. So the um, so that's Volos in a nutshell. The um, Chris, did you want to talk a little bit about um, S- S- Storm King's Thunder? Is anyone here playing through that adventure currently? Cool. Okay, fair number of people. The um, that is a similar process to this where we took giants mm-hmm. and said, well, okay, we have this idea of the ordning. What happens when the giants? We've had the dragons arise. Now, what's the giants' response going to be? Right, yeah. Storm King's Thunder was meant to feel like a continuation of the Tyranny of Dragons story insofar as things happen in Tyranny of Dragons that precipitate uh, the situation uh, that happens with the giants in Storm King's Thunder. Uh, The thrust of the story is that the ordning has been shattered. Uh, What that means is the giants don't don't have a, a caste system to hold them together anymore, and various evil giants go out into the world to kind of create a new ordning ideally with them at the top. And so all of this instability in the world of the giants is created because their gods are annoyed because the giants really didn't take a stand against the dragons uprising at all. And so this is a kind of punishment and a test. And the people, of course, who suffer the most are the little folk um, who get trampled under the giants when they're going about doing these things to impress their gods. And... One of the key things about the, the, the giant story is we wanted it to feel huge in every way. And so it spans a lot of territory and takes the characters to a lot of different oversized, gigantic, kind of epic, unbelievably huge locations. Um, from a fire giant underground forge to uh, an iceberg fortress of frost giants to this undersea citadel of the storm giants. Everything is intended to be just absolutely huge. Characters can get an airship and they can teleport. They can find a whole uh, network of teleportation circles that they can use to get to and from the realms uh, in various places. And they go to deserts and they go to the far north and they meet Arviatris, a ancient white dragon, and they meet Cloggy Liamatar, an ancient green dragon, and they they form an alliance possibly with an evil red dragon. Like everything is just massively huge um, because uh, when you're dealing with something as mythic as the Ordning and as mythic as giants, uh, it felt like we didn't want to tell 
a small story. Um, now, what that means, we can't do that every time, of course. Not every story can be earth-shaking. Um, uh, but for this story, it felt like it should be. And one of the other things that we added to the story to give it a little bit more resonance is this sort of um, Shakespearean, King Lear-esque feeling of a family being torn asunder um, by the events around them and by poor decisions that they're making. Um, King Hecaton, who is a storm giant, is a Lear-like figure. Um, and he's got three daughters, and that's sort of a deliberate nod to the Shakespearean play. Um, but then we turn the story on its head, and we say, instead of focusing on the Lear character and empathizing with him, we're going to try to focus on his daughters and empathize with them and understand what they, how they respond when their father is taken away from them. And they have a choice. They can try to bring the giants together and try to hold the fabric of giant society together, or they can just dash it all away and carve out their own destinies and move from there. So as characters go through and they start confronting these evil giants and trying to figure out what's going on, why are all these giants stomping around the realms all of a sudden, how can we stop it? They can turn to this family of storm giants and maybe in helping them solve a lot of the problems that are going on, um, bring some sense of order to this chaos. Uh, but it's really, the entire story hinges around the actions of the player characters. It's really up to them. And Storm King's Thunder doesn't say everything's going to be solved in the end. The end of the story could be the Ordning is just broken forever. Deal with it. Um, but the players, if they're smart, if they're cagey, if they're canny, they might find a way to actually bring some sense of order to it. Um, they have to choose what they're going to do. They have to choose whether or not they want to fight their way to the end or if they want to try a diplomatic solution. I like stories where it's not spelled out how it should, how it should end. And I love hearing from people who run these adventures and seeing that no two campaigns resolve it the same way. I think it's a great strength of, of role-playing games that you are defining the story as it's going along, and the ending is not predetermined. It hasn't been scripted. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about how, uh, when you think of those adventures, you know, it's, it's one of the things we do with these annual adventures that we do. Um, how has the design of that shifted over time in terms of like the product we're building? Like for instance, like I know you've talked about when, when you approach it thinking more in terms, not just of the story, but also in terms of world building, presenting, you know, a, a, something that's more flexible for DM to use. You know, like, you know, the, the, are there any design changes that have taken place, say, since we launched fifth edition through Curse of Strahd, through S Storm King's Thunder that then might also influence our, our future products? Every story we try to approach uh, uniquely um, because depending on the conflicts that are introduced, the, the creatures that are going to be emphasized, the locations that you're going to be visit, they all sort of affect how the adventure needs to be presented. What I mean by that is uh, Tyranny of Dragons was a fairly linear story. Um, and it had a linear progression through until you got to the end and finally had your big showdown with Tiamat. 
And then uh, with Temple of Elemental Evil and the Elemental Evil story, uh, it was intended to be much more a reflection of the original Temple of, uh, uh, Temple of Elemental Evil adventure, a very sort of dungeon-focused um, approach, uh, much more local. Um, because it's dungeon-focused, a lot of the decisions are left versus right, through the door or not through the door. Um, when do we stop pressing through the dungeon and retreat to gather our supplies and rest up? Um, then like with Curse of Strahd, a very different feeling story again, where you're just kind of thrown into this dark domain and at the mercy of this vampire, but the adventure is kind of set up as this sandbox where you can kind of wander around Barovia and visit interesting locations, all of which have been touched by and warped by the influence of Strahd von Zarovich. And then Storm King's Thunder, which is this huge, sprawling, go here, go there, go up, go down, go everywhere, um, fight six kinds of giants. Uh, it's vast. Every, story, every time we sit down to work on an adventure, we think about fundamentally what's the best structure for that experience to get the ideas of the story across or the feel of the story across. And sometimes... A linear story works well, and sometimes a sandbox approach where the characters have a lot more time to wander works well. Storm King's Thunder, for all the urgency, um, there's not really a ticking clock because the giant villains, their plots take time to unfold. And actually, the giant villains, in almost every case, have decided to try to do something that's well beyond their capabilities, and they might never even succeed. Um, and there's something, uh, and so the characters don't have to finish the adventure in 30 days or three days. There's no, there's no impetus to rush through to the very end. A lot of the tech that has been evolving has been, um, I want to say that with every adventure, I feel like we're making improvements to, in terms of the presentation to make it easier on the DM to run, including short sidebars to help the DM. Uh, um, but a lot of the adventure structure really depends on the story that we're trying to tell. Uh, and so I feel like it's every time we tell a new story, we're going to do different things or we're going to include things that we haven't included in adventures before, uh, either because we're experimenting or because we think we need to provide this information to help the DM run the adventure effectively. Uh, the, um, like a, a story I'm working on now without going into any details whatsoever, uh, is basically, uh, it starts off very sandboxy in the beginning and then becomes much more focused and um, uh, sort of old school D&D yeah. &D toward the end. So it's a combination of well the Well done. You didn't spoil anything. There. Yeah. It's, it's a combination. <laughs> it's attempting to, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's a combination of sandbox and uh, sort of a more... Um, dungeony thing uh, but it's we've never done this in any of the stories for fifth edition before uh, so we a, as i go through and i finish up my work on it a lot of the stuff i'm doing is just wrapping my head around understanding what dms 
want and need out of this adventure to run it effectively. Um, now, one of the things we do with stories that has a great impact on how the story actually, how the product comes together, and we ha we've never done this prior to fifth edition, is we bring in consultants. Uh, and those consultants aren't necessarily people from the role-playing game industry. What they are are creative spirits out in the world uh, who are doing great things in whatever venue that they work in. Um, for instance, on Curse of Strahd, we had Tracy Hickman, the creator of Ravenloft, come in. And that made a great deal of sense because Curse of Strahd is essentially a retelling of the original Ravenloft story. We've just added flourishes and a few more dimensions to it. Um, with uh, one of the projects I'm working on now, we brought in Pendleton Ward, who is the creator of Adventure Time, because we thought that his sensibilities... Uh, he, he's a longtime D and D player, a longtime D and D fan. Anybody who's ever seen Adventure Time knows that clearly. Uh, uh, but we thought bringing him in would add something to the story that would be completely unexpected—a uh, certain charm, if you will. And a lot of the conversations that we had with him was uh, me just trying to put part of them into the story. <clears throat> so when you see the thing that we worked on with Pendleton Ward and you see his name in the credits and you're reading through the book, you will reach certain points where you're going to say, you know, that was probably his idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, these, these consultants that we bring in are, are really defining. They come in very early in the process before word one on an adventure product is even written. Uh, and uh, and their, their whole mandate or what they do for us is they give us a perspective that's new and fresh and surprising because all of the stories that we've been telling and the ones that are in the immediate future basically tap into the well of D&D nostalgia. We have 40 years of D&D to draw from. Lots of classic adventures that resonate with people and have withstood the passage of time. Um, when we pull that material forward and we update it, we always try to put a fresh spin on it so that it's not the same. It's like Temple of Elemental Evil, but it's not Temple of Elemental Evil. It's got some other element or some new twist. The, the reason why we do that is because we are creating a shared experience among fans of now multiple generations. D&D uh, is a multi-generational experience. And we want, whether you're 12 years old or 22 years old or 32-year-olds or 42-year-old, 52-year-old, 62-year-old, we want to have certain things about D&D be known to everybody. So if you're sitting around a table and there's people of all ages there, if I can say the name Mordenkainen and everybody knows what I'm talking about, then we have succeeded in creating something uh, that reaches out to everybody. And a lot of our stories and our adventure products try to do that. They pull things from the past into the present and then cast them in a new way so that new people are discovering it for the first time and people who are familiar with the past can now revisit it in a new way. Yeah, yeah. that's a good summary. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we've been talking for about an hour. Uh, 
and we're just about to hit Q&A, the one thing I wanted to throw out there too was um, one of the things we're doing going forward is um, we launched the DMs Guild about, almost a year ago. And we have our Adventures League program continues to, to be very strong. Um, one of the things we are looking to do is integrate more of the stuff that we're doing, like product, especially product, into Adventures League and into the DMs Guild. So, for instance, for like the, for next year's big adventure, we're already starting to plan now. We've met with the AL admins, actually flew out to Seattle about a month ago uh, to start planning out what does Adventures League mean and how can we better integrate the Adventures League content with our, 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 our main big releases. So that's something where it's not a product now. It's not really an announcement per se, but it's just something you can expect to see more of as we go forward. We've been really happy with DMs Guild. It's actually way ahead of schedule in terms of like people of use. So we're still kind of playing catch up with that. But um, those are two things which you can expect to see more integration with everything as we move forward. So unless you guys have anything you want to uh, add in, do we good to go over to Q&A? Yeah, let's or? take questions. Yeah, so let's take questions. So what we could do is, um, oh, we have a microphone. So if we want to just pass the microphone around, we can, yeah, that's great. Hi, um, I was wondering if while you guys are designing books for the future, does the, this is going to be a DM book versus a player's book entered into the equation? Because so far, I mean, most of the hardcovers have been adventures, which I would think would be mainly a, G, a DM book. So what I'm hearing about Volos is making me pretty happy because it seems to have a pretty good variety in both. Yeah. So our, our, our focus overall is to make D&D books. Uh, and we want books that are going to see play. Uh, so obviously adventures are a big priority for us since that's what you actually play at the table. Uh, and whenever possible now, when making a, even a, what traditionally would have been just a DM's book, we also have player material there that is... Uh, as long as that player material is coherent with the DM material, because again, our vision is we're making D and D books, not this is solely for the player or this is solely for the DM. Now there's also another piece to this. Uh, and that is player books, unlike DM books have much higher probability of if done poorly and we do everything we can to not do them poorly, have a much greater potential to destabilize the game than, say, an adventure. Um, you'll, one of the reasons why we've been very measured about how much new player content we introduce to the game is every time you add a new subclass to the game, uh, even a new spell or two to the game, you have the potential to spark new questions, which can be fun and interesting, but can also sometimes be problematic. Uh, and so... Our goal is to always keep the game approachable, fun, accessible. And so the last thing we want is to create so many new options that people are sort of swimming in the sea of options and they're not sure what to pick and, oh, my God, do I, do I want the option in source book number 15 or the, or the option in source book number 12? Yeah. Uh, we, we really want the focus to be on the core books, exploring how to use those options uh, in, in, in as many creative ways as possible with the occasional addition of new interesting options that build on the options in the core books. Uh, but again, 
accessibility to us is a really high priority. We never want a person to go into a game store or to go onto Amazon and not know where to start. Yeah, exactly. We, we always want you to know that when I'm going to play Dungeons & Dragons, here's where I start. And here yeah. being either the starter set, the player's handbook, or the free rules on our website. Uh, we, we want basically everyone to feel like they can walk through the door into this wonderful realm that those of us who already play D&D love, that it's really easy to walk through that door. Yeah. And we have found that in past editions, when you're starting to hit source book number 18, oh boy, that door can be a little difficult to walk through. Yeah, to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit, there's a re- well, part of the reason why Volo's Guide to Monsters has that <coughs> title. The primary one was we wanted something that was very distinctly D&D. So Volo is very just, you know, he's part of the realms, part of D&D. You can't mistake that for any, any other, you know, fantasy setting but also was to make sure that it, we don't confuse people with which, which monster book should I buy. So you think Monster Manual 2 or Monster Manual 3 is veteran DD players. We don't know, but Monster Manual 1 is the core one. But if you're coming like all of our new players, almost all of our new players are from video games, you think, okay, if I go to the store and I see Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 on the shelf, I should buy Mass Effect 3. That's the newest one. It'll have the best graphics. It'll summarize the story that came before. And that's the one everyone's going to be talking about. So obviously I buy the latest in the series, Call of Duty. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to buy the newest Call of Duty because that's what all the everyone else is playing. So if I want to play multiplayer, that's where everyone's going to be. If I go out and buy Call of Duty 2, the servers are empty. So that's another thing we've found is using titles like Player's Handbook 2 is actually really bad for the game. Yeah. Uh, I have actually met the person who tried playing uh, 4th edition D&D with Player's Handbook 3. That was what they bought. Yeah, and they it doesn't have rules for combat. <laughs> now, God bless him, he managed to become a D&D player, but that's where that person started. <clears throat> and that's that's double bad for us because then you have someone who, hey, I spent, you know, 50 bucks in your game and I can't play it, right? We don't ever want to be in that, 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 that situation. So it's like 75% of that title is we wanted something distinct. Uh, 25% was we wanted something which for the new player walking into the store or going online, they, there was no confusion about, about where they need to start. And, and it might be a, a funny thing for you to hear us say, but we actually really do not want the brand new D&D player to even be tempted to buy this book right away or yeah. any, of our, <laughs> any, any of our latest books. We always want them to go to the core books. Uh, and so that, that is it, – it's sort of a new thing to be on the D&D team's mind because, you know, in previous editions, we'd often have titles and then just increment numbers after them. And – uh, we've realized with this new generation of players, as Mike said, that it doesn't actually help the game. Yeah. Uh, we always want it to be clear: this is where you start. Don't come. Don't get this stuff yet. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one one thing to add to for the player versus DM divide: when we have something with player content in it, we always want to assume too that that's content that the player can read like from cover to cover and not feel like the game's been ruined. So something like. St- Storm King's Thunder is really aimed at Dungeon Masters because if it's a player you read it, then you, you kind of know all the secrets. But something like Volos, we actually, like, if you're a player and you're really, you, you like D&D enough to buy the expansions, we want you to know, oh, here's what mind players are like and use that to inform your thinking of the game and your own role playing. So. Uh, you have really been talking a lot about the legacy of the game and if my 18-year-old self could picture my 46-year-old self being here in a D&D convention, I would be totally surprised. It's <laughs> awesome to see the vibrancy of the game today. You're the current caretakers of D&D, and there's a future. The footprint of D&D on the culture is huge compared to where it was back in the 80s. 
So what are you guys doing now to think about the future and help set it up? Oh, yeah, though, that is like one of the big things that drives us. So most of my job is actually that. So, you know, there's obviously the role-playing game is really important. But, uh, and obviously I can't talk about specific details, but really what we do, if you think about how we're approaching like a book like Volos, we're really in the business of myth-making. You know, we're thinking, what does D&D mean? And what are the stories that people will tell about D&D? And how does that inform future games, future, future stories, future like, and, and types of entertainment we might offer? We really want to build a D&D where it's not just the game. It's not just the mechanics. It's also tropes. It's also this mythology. You know, it's the same thing where, you know, when you think of like cosplay and fanfic and things like that, we really want to start sparking that because we think that's where you build a culture around a game that can be passed from generation to, to, to generation, you know, parents to children and so on, you know, grandparents to grandkids. Uh, there was even someone just posted, oh, I'm playing, I'm running D&D for my grandparents, right? So in the reverse direction, right? But really making it something that resonates with people and for our, you use the word caretakers, and that's definitely how we think of ourselves, that we're not just, you know, we mentioned this idea of we're building a tapestry, it's a puzzle. We're not just thinking, what's next quarter's book? We're thinking, what's, you know, what's five years from now look like? What are the opportunities we have, especially in a world with changing technology, that we can step in really quickly and deliver something really cool? And things like story and that mythology, that's much more portable than saying, oh, here's how armor class works. Uh, here's this perfectly balanced set of races and classes. Well, if you're talking about a Facebook game or a mobile game, that might have absolutely no relevance. But if in the game you're like, oh, this game's about fighting dragons and eventually taking down Tiamat, oh, that's cool. Like, I get it. And regardless of your involvement with D&D, those are words that mean something to you and that mythology is important to you. So a lot of what we're doing, especially on the technology side, is looking, we're always looking for partners and we're always looking for, like, what's the next big thing and, and how can we get involved in that? The advantage we have with D&D is a lot of create because D&D is a very creative game, a lot of people who are creating stuff are they know D&D and they're interested in it. So we just always want to make sure that we're ready to take advantage of that. And then on the flip side, you know, where Chris's job really comes in is the stories we're telling, they're contemporary and they're interesting, but they also have an element of 5 years from now they can still be relevant. You know, when we were talking about doing uh, the giant storyline, uh, if you watch Attack on Titan, it's this anime, it's really cool, uh, these creepy weird giants. Um, and part of me was like, oh, how much should we dip into Attack on Titan and use that as inspiration? But in the counter argument was, well, in five years, how relevant will Attack on Titan be? You know, so let's kind of stay with what is important to us. We can be kind of inspired by it in a few ways, but we don't want it to be really on the nose or really set link ourselves to a specific time where it's like, oh, that was relevant in 2011, but it's 2020. Like, who cares about that now? You know, so really focusing on what D&D is and building stories that can stand the test of time. So, you know, 20 years from now, someone might get in D&D and they could still play Storm King's Thunder and find it really interesting. So, And a big part even of the fifth edition design process was us delving into the entire, the entire past of the game. And part of that was, we, you know, we wanted to have that retrospective approach where we're honoring the game's past. But a big part of that was a part of what Mike is talking about, that we wanted to, in everything we do, uh, even for the tabletop role-playing game, lay foundation for a Dungeons & Dragons that can be here and be healthy 40 years from now and 40 years after that. Uh, and so rather than sort of viewing D&D as this, this, this vein of gold that we're just going to come in here and strip mine, Instead, in a more mythological sense, it's like this golden goose that we're going to kind of caress and we'll let it take its time 
but when it when it's ready to lay an egg, it's going to be golden and it's going to be beautiful. And and we we want ten years from now to be even greater for the game than this year. Yeah. And that's how we work. Yeah. The other thing that we do is we're always looking at ways to reach out to the community. Um, the creation of the DMs Guild as a, a place where you can publish your own work uh, for the betterment of other people's games and, and get some money for doing it uh, helps the community. Uh, the technological advances in terms of uh, playing on Twitch, the Roll D20 app, all of these uh, games that are popping up over the internet now are helping to expand the community. Because we know that not everybody has a regular game group. Uh, they can't play D&D every week for whatever reason. But they can still feel like a D&D player or a D&D participant by watching some of the games online. Um, Critical Role is obviously a big, 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 big deal uh, right now. I do my own live stream game as well every week. Uh, and uh, I've... I was initially hesitant at first to to uh, put my uh, game's fate in the hands of technology, but the technology has gotten to a point now where it's no longer a barrier. It's it's actually doing things to improve my game. Uh, I think that uh, one of our goals going forward is just to find new ways to engage the community using whatever technological resources we have access to uh, so that everybody feels like they can partake in D&D no matter where they are or what they're doing. So after hearing about the process that you guys use for the Volos Guide to determine what monsters we're going to go in, I'm envisioning the same process being used for the core rule set. So I'm sure each of you had something in mind that you wanted to be in the player's handbook but wound up on the cutting room floor. So I'm wondering what each of your favorite house rule is in your own games. <laughs> I don't really have house rules. I just have rules on playtesting that we're going to put in a future book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So the um, so from my own campaign, I run a really weird campaign. Uh, Chris plays in it. Uh, it's a very non-standard setting, so it's a little hard to use direct things. But uh, and I don't know if I could get away with putting. So I'll, I'll just say I don't know if I could ever get get away with putting this in my in a, in a Dini book. But in my campaign, there's actually an element of uh, law and chaos and. Literally, as you go from to the west, chaos becomes more powerful. And as you go east, law becomes more powerful. And law deals in technology. So you go far enough east, you find technology. And there's a paladin they met. And everyone in the party was like, oh, I want to be that guy. Because there was this paladin who went to the chaos lands where they are. And he had a suit of power armor and a gun. And they just thought that guy was really cool. What are you shaking your head? You don't want to be that guy? He is a <laughs> He may or may not be leading an army uh, to deflatten the city where the characters live. They're not sure yet. So, but yeah, I always thought it'd be fun to incorporate firearms into D and D. Probably not actually have a guy in. I mean, to be blunt, I'm a, I was a 40k player, so he was essentially in ter uh, Terminator armor with a power sword. I can't be that on the point, on the nose with anything. We added D and D, but I do like the idea of adding maybe a, a class or something that's a little more like using firearms. Uh, maybe a little more steampunky, maybe without being steampunk. So that's something I think would, would be fun to add to the game. It's yeah, not it's not for everybody, but it's something that I always liked. So, yeah, and it's funny because my home game also has uh, technology in it: uh, airships, guns. I mean, just yeah. in in our most recent session, this 
was it this past Saturday? Yeah. <laughs> and the characters went to a shop that we called Guns, Guns, Guns. <laughs> <laughs> and they got swindled See, by our the... campaigns are just like yours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, 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 I, they got swindled by the dwarf proprietors, yes. but, yeah. but they walked out with guns. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't really use, use house rules either. Um, Again, partly because I'm the rules guy. So if if I'm if I'm if I have a rule in my mind, it's it's destined for the game. Um, but also part of that is in my home game. I actually have uh, I, the closest I have to a house rule is that we don't use house rules and we don't play test things. Uh, at work, I'll play test things, but in my home game, uh, it is all about the story uh, and it's all about. Uh, me and my players, some of whom, including Chris, work on the game. It's a chance for us to just enjoy D and D as D and D, uh, and just to be like you guys playing D and D. So the last thing I yeah. want is my home game to feel like I'm at work and like be, because often when we play test things at work, like when we're having an actual play test session, it's not like a regular D and D session. Uh, like when we had we we had play tests for fifth edition where we would call them stress tests, where we would try out a rule, we'd play, and then if it broke, we'd stop, rewind, change the rule, play through that little bit of the encounter again. If it worked, fine, we'd keep going. If it didn't, stop. So not at all like, hey, we're immersed in a story, and we're in yeah. a world, and we're role-playing our characters. And so I don't really want my home game to uh, have any whiff of that. Now, I will say that the optional rule that's in 5th edition that I use a lot in my home game, and so I don't really think of it as a house rule because it's right there in the rule books, but I make extensive use of the optional rule that lets you mix and match ability scores with skills. Uh, so I, I, I would say at least 50% of the time I'm asking people to make skill checks with an ability that's different from the one that it's normally aligned with because uh, I find Basically, what I do is I, I listen to how the player describes what their character is doing. Then I decide which ability they're using with which skill. Yeah. Um, Dexterity athletics instead of strength athletics or right. something like that. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Actually, I actually don't use XP in my campaign. And it was interesting because on Twitter I asked, like, do, do, you, do you use XP or do you just level up players whenever? And actually most people said they just level up whenever. Yeah, I don't, I use, that was I don't use XP either. Yeah. That was actually going to be the thing I – I called on for my games. I, I tend not to track XP anymore. Uh, I'm so focused on trying to create a good story and trying to keep my players engaged, realizing that they don't care about XP either. If I ran for a group that did, I would probably change and use a more structured XP system. Yeah. But my players are just happy for me to let them know when they level up, and they're good with that. Yeah, I, I think what... And, and it was interesting that, that a majority of people said they don't use XPs. I think the game's shifted a bit where people are much more like it's your stable group where you meet week after week, where I think when, when Gary and Dave created the game back in the 70s, it was a shifting cast every week. They'd talk about, oh, yeah, I like 12 players, but of the 12, it was drawn from a cast of 36 people who may have shown up. And I think XP made, makes a lot of sense in that situation because it's kind of a marker of, hey, if you show up every week, you get to go at a higher level than everyone else. This is your reward if you take yeah. some risk. And so it's not, it's interesting to think it's a mechanic that's very core, but it might be something that is actually more aimed at a play style rather than just being part of the game. But right. obviously that's not something we would just, oh, next week we're going to change that. That's any changes we make to the core rules. That's going to be the course of years, and we will telegraph it way ahead of time. And like we love to do, we love to do our surveys. We would probably 
like the Ranger, how we've handled that, where here's proposed change, <coughs> you hated it. Well, here's a proposed change, you hate that too. <laughs> how about this? Oh, you guys, and actually we haven't talked about it, the server results were very positive for the, yeah. the third, third time's a charm. So, <laughs> so now if we ever did something like that, which I think we would, because again, people are very positive, it's still some work to do. But even that, we would say, well, you can use the player's handbook ranger, or here's a revised ranger. If your players aren't happy with that ranger, here's one you can also use. If an adventurer's league, yeah, you want to play a ranger, but you're not crazy about the player's handbook version, here's a version that, that, that you, can, you can play. So we don't want to force you to change your campaign. That, to me, is always, again, going back to the idea that we're, we're providing a service to you, which is servicing your campaigns, so they run smoothly. We don't want to be like, okay, now armor class is now dis- it goes down again. Because why not? Woo! Right? Never <laughs> loves that go, right? So, yeah. Hi, I um, I really love when you guys uh, get on Twitter and answer rules questions, and I really love the Sages uh, advice compendium. Oh, I was wondering, like, ten years ago what did the rules clarification process look like in the sort of writing and editing versus today, given this just crazy influx of questions and, and, and th- scenarios you get? Like, 10 years ago, did you invite down Bob and Sarah from accounting and say, does this make sense? And, <laughs> you know, what does that look like today versus then? Um, so 10 years ago, which is, I, I started at Wizards of the Coast almost exactly 10 years ago. Uh, and, well, nine and a half years ago. Back then, uh, customer service at the company actually dealt with a lot of rules questions. And at that time, we were still in third edition. Uh, the company did rely, at least in the design process, much more on just talking to people internally. Uh, our, our public-facing surveying is something that we've really embraced uh, since uh, the design process of fifth edition. So back then, at the design stage, it was much more internal. Uh, you would talk to some. If you went outside the D and D R and D department, it was often to talk to someone in Magic R and D or to talk to somebody in customer service. Now, at the design and development stage, we go to you guys. Yeah. Uh, that that's that's our priority. What what do our players think? Now, when it comes to then being the steward of the rules, once. You know, we've consulted with you and we've gone through our development process and the rule is now actually a part of the game. When it comes to, to our stewardship of that rule, one thing that is very different from in the past is, again, in the past, customer service would answer people's questions and maybe even make rulings. Now, what we found is that sometimes that unfortunately resulted in conflicting rulings because you'd have different people in customer service uh, providing rulings. And there was a culture around the game at the time, both in third and fourth edition, that Wizards of the Coast in a way could trump your DM. And we wanted to make sure that in fifth edition, no one can trump the DM. This is why I often like to remind people, no matter what I say, as the keeper of the rules of Dungeons and Dragons, your DM can override me. Uh, that I am there to provide clarity to the dungeon master uh, and clarity to players as well so that you can understand our intent. Uh, But at the end of the day, the dungeon master is the adjudicator. Now, another thing that's changed uh, is in me, development and editing are under one person. Uh, 
That was also different in the past. In the past, rules development and the editorial side were actually handled by different teams. And so we, we felt a number of years ago that in a way that separation didn't make sense because D&D is a text-based game. The rules do not exist uh, apart from the wording of those rules. That was in a really important sort of aha for us a number of years ago that it didn't make sense to have one person who's saying, all right, I'm in charge of how these rules function and someone else is in charge of how those rules are worded. That might make sense if we were, say, working on a computer game where you could have one person dealing with the game development that the player never sees directly and someone else is in charge of the UI, sort of you know how you actually interact with those systems. In D&D, the rule and the UI are the same thing. Uh, the rule does not exist apart from its wording. And so in me, those roles were unified. Uh, and so that's, that's also different from 10 years ago. And then further, it's different that now the, one of the lead designers of the game is the guy answering the questions. Because we decided we wanted to basically cut out all middlemen. Uh, now when I answer a rules question, I don't have to go consult with anybody on, oh, what was your intent, designer so-and-so, <laughs> on uh, this rule? My conversation is with myself. I'm, I, it's mostly, so, oh, right, that was three years ago. That's right. We had discussed in that meeting that we wanted this to work that way. Once in a while, I'll go to Mike because uh, it might my memory might be foggy, uh, or it might even be sometimes a rules interaction that we didn't foresee. Uh, because with a game as complex as D and D, there are at times ways in which the rules will interact that, despite several years of play testing and several years of very intense game development. We simply didn't predict the way rule A would interact with rule B. And so that's a time where Mike and I might sit down together and we'll think, okay, so if we had an intent, <laughs> what, what would it be? So it's sort of we have to come up with like a, like a retrospective intent. Like given our intent for all of the things that are involved in this interaction, what would our intent be for this interaction? Uh, but it's – so I really to, to sort of summarize all of that, the big way in which it's changed is, uh, in a way, it's much more personal. Uh, it's just you're, when when you ask us questions, you're talking directly to the people who worked on the material, uh, as opposed to sort of members of multiple teams uh, in a in a large corporation. Uh, it's just it's us. It's, it's the guys who did it. Hi, uh, you guys talked about bringing consultants in on some projects and stuff. And I guess my question would be, have you guys been consulted on things like Stranger Things? And with that show, what was your feelings on their take of like the Demogorgon and the Veil of Shadows and stuff? So that, that sometimes, so uh, Stranger Things was a show that they didn't talk to us beforehand. Uh, some shows do. Um, so it really just kind of depends on what, what the producers feel is important and, you know, if they want to get permission and what exactly they want to do. Um, but you know, so we we didn't know that it would be so steeped in D and D. Um, but I think the show is fantastic because what I think is great about it is, from my point of view, it really shows how D and D affects how people think and act, and it really gets to the social bonds that a gaming group can form, especially at that age. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because I was, you know, and, uh, I like how, you know, not to spoil it, but you know, in the, in the first episode when, uh, and I'm blanking on their names now because I watched it back in early September. Uh, but like when the kid's confronted with the monster in the first episode, his first reaction is to run and go get a shotgun. And I think that's a very D&D &D thing, right? Like D&D &D teaches us there are monsters out there, but you can defeat them. 
you know, they're not, you don't just turn and run into panic. You don't just curl up in a ball and cry. Like, you figure out how can I overcome this thing? And I thought that was really cool. And then the relationship between the characters and how they approach things, it was really interesting to me because you had, I think they really caught, especially thinking back to when I was that age, you know, how D&D affected how I, th- how I, I thought about stuff. Yeah, it, it, it was interesting that as, 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 much, as much as I goobed out about seeing like specific things from D&D in the show, like, you know, the Demogorgon and, and seeing, you know, like the old Dungeon Master screen and other, other you know, sort of D&D artifacts that appeared in the show, my favorite part in the end was the focus on friendship uh, because that for me it is my most powerful memory of starting to play D&D as an elementary school student. You know, I started playing f- first edition in elementary school and one, one of the players in my home D&D group is one of my friends that I played with all the way back then, uh, my friend Andy. Uh, and so that show showed that you can literally make lifelong friendships with this game. So that, that for me was the most powerful part of that show. When I first saw the show, I was like, God damn it, they're not playing the game right. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my next thought was, oh yeah, neither did I yeah. when I was 10. <laughs> We, I had no idea what I was doing when I was ten years old and playing D anD. d Yeah, when I when I started, we didn't even know there were rules. There was yeah. an older kid who he, I think he ran us the first adventure I ever played in was White Plume Mountain, and he just would describe things to us and just say, "What do you do?" And so we would just say whatever, you know. I I shoot green lightning out of my hands, and he was like, "Okay, roll a die." So it was actually a number of years later that I discovered, <laughs> wait, this game has rule books. <laughs> Yeah, so just to confirm, with Jeremy Crawford's talking about hags, the next book isn't uh, What to Do in Evermore When You're Dead. (laughs) But um, some of the things that we've had the last season on Adventures League and with the books was multiple layer actions and legendary actions of creatures. Um, As many people who form a military know, um, squads of soldiers that operate together end up performing a standard operating procedure in certain situations. Has there been any thought to something like a battlefield action with groups of monsters that are interacting with each other at lower levels? Oh yeah, as, as far as terms like for mass combat or things right. like that. Yeah, actually um, the uh, there might be some, uh, so we, we did some mass combat rules uh, last year, or no, not last year, 2015. Yeah, so last year, we're almost, the, 2016 is still here, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, the, um, so we're actually, uh, I took another pass at that and heavily revised those. So one of the things we looked at for, for mass combat was to make it a bit more abstract, but give a lot of space for the player characters to interact directly in, in critical scenes. So what I like to use as the example is if you think of in, in the Two Towers film, uh, when they're attacking, um, what's the face at the fort that the Rohirrim run to, the uh, whatever it's called, Helm's Deep. Uh, there's the scene where the, or- the Urukai are trying to batter through the gate and so Gimli and Aragorn go out the side door and jump in. And realizing, well, for that scene, if you're running it in D&D, you don't need mass combat to simulate a dwarf and a ranger fighting like a two dozen orcs for a battering ram. But you do need it for, well, when the orcs charge the wall, what happens? So it's a little bit more abstract. It's more aimed at answering that question. But then giving lots of space for the players to take part in those critical events that might alter what happens then next as the armies clash. So that's something which we I actually have designed and is kicking around, and you might see it in Unearthed Arcana soonish. 
but we'll, we shall see. Interesting thing about um, sort of a shared lair action or legendary action where essentially multiple monsters are contributing to it. We've actually dabbled with that a little bit in the game already. I mean, with things like the Hag Coven spell lists, mm-hmm. where they don't get access to those unless they're actually working right. together. They have to Voltron together yeah, to, exactly. to get so that. Yeah. Voltron abilities yeah. sort of are creeping into the game. Yeah. yeah, And you also notice in Volos, like I know, for instance, the Knolls, uh, they, there's a Flind that has an ability that amplifies the sort of baked-in ability that Knolls get. So that's also something we look at doing mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, you add this one creature and it's, it's changing how these other creatures mm-hmm. are acting. So, yeah. I don't know if you guys are the right people to ask this, but uh, there's been a lot of speculation about what's going on with the novel lines and they're possibly ending. I was wondering if you could shed some light on that at all. So that just falls into the category. We don't have any new products to announce. So the, uh, yeah, there's no, there's nothing formal there or anything for us to talk about. So, Um, first of all, I want to thank you um, for partnering with uh, Fantasy Grounds. I'm former military, and uh, you've enabled me to game with a group that I played with back in the early 90s. We're awesome. playing again together, cool. all of us, um, nice. using that medium, and I just I can't thank you enough. Um, the next thing I want to ask is there's been some discussion in my group. Um, we, we well know that when you're casting a spell, um, bonus spell, or if you cast a bonus spell, the other spell that you can do is a cantrip with a casting time of one. But if later I cast that lightning bolt or whatever and, and the bonus spell is also went off, later after my turn, it's someone else's turn, they're attacking me, I could still throw up a shield as a reactionary spell? Or no? Uh, yeah, the, the bonus action casting rule applies only during your turn. So as soon as your turn is over, your your reaction is is free to still to, to to cast shield or whatever other spell you might have that can be cast as a reaction. Excellent, thank you. I appreciate you clearing that up. So love fifth edition, best edition. I'll fight anyone in those wars. Um, <laughs> but I really liked 4th edition as well. And one of the things as a DM that I liked about 4th edition is when you had a monster stat block, you didn't need anything else. Everything was right there. Um, in 5th edition, we've gone to having, mostly that's true, except for spellcasters. And a lot of times in those spell lists will be things that are non-combat spells. And again, if I don't memorize the entire list, I then have to kind of look through everything to find out what's useful in combat and what's useful in not. Have you guys thought of any ways to address that as far as you know, GM prep of spells? Uh, it's actually something we went around and around and around about uh, in the design process of uh, the 5th edition monster manual. Uh, we, we even experimented with different approaches to the stat block. Uh, one of the reasons we've ended up where we are is... We wanted to facilitate DM choice above everything else. Uh, And one of the things that perhaps we could communicate better is there's not a wrong way for a DM to run that monster. Uh, If a spellcaster decides to just pick one of those spells on the list and use all of their slots to cast that spell over and over again, and that's actually why we often make sure a spellcaster has something like lightning bolt or fireball, that's a perfectly fine way to run that monster. Uh, the other things are often there for world building purposes. Uh, you know, like we know that given this creature's story, 
that outside combat, uh, it will have this particular magical ability. The other thing, though, is that the the combat, non-combat barrier, I would say, is not as firm as it has been in some other editions. There are certain spells that on first blush look like they're non-combat spells, which sometimes become pivotal in a battle. Uh, and, and also for story reasons, the creature might decide to cast in battle. So in the fifth edition process, we and this was something Chris and I in particular talked about as the two of us were finishing the monster manual together, is we realized as we started thinking about, well, is this combat or non-combat, we couldn't actually say for certain in some cases because each of us could very easily think of cases where, well, actually I could see the Lich casting this in a certain strange battle. Uh, and so we didn't want to pre-script things too much. Uh, we wanted to just say, here are the spells of this monster. DM, use them as you see fit. That all said because this is a living game and we're always looking uh, at feedback, this is certainly the kind of thing that we could tweak uh, going forward. Um, and it's also something where I, I am often mindful when I'm reviewing spell lists to make sure as often as possible they are populated by roughly 50% of spells that are pretty common. Yeah. Uh, because the other reason we took this approach of putting spells in rather than spelling out what each of them um, did, like we don't give you the text of Fireball, for instance, in a monster stat block, is we want the DM to actually be able to rely on his or her knowledge of this commonly used thing. So if the DM flips open their monster manual and they're like, oh, okay, got it. Here's Lightning Bolt. I know what Lightning Bolt does. That's the spell I'm going to cast. The DM's good. They know everything they need to know. Because the the downside actually of everything in a monster man, in a monster always being unique is the DM can never rely on their experience from DMing in the past. Like that's one reason why we didn't want basically a hundred variations of fireball. You know, this is overwhelming fire blast. This is this is sudden fire burst. Uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and we did a lot of that in the previous edition. Uh, instead, we could just say fireball, and people know what fireball does. Um, so I hope that I hope that answers the question. So you've had a live experience DMing, running games, playing games. I'm sure you've seen live campaigns come to conclusions either abruptly or planned. What are your favorite stories that you've seen of uh, character retirement or favorite stories of a character death? Uh, I ran a fourth edition campaign for two different groups simultaneously, one group on Monday night and one group on Wednesday night. Uh, <laughs> the, the Wednesday group made the decision at the end of the campaign to sacrifice all their characters, to essentially blow themselves up, to take the villain with them. Um, so that struck me as sort of a memorable end to that campaign. Not at all was I, what I was expecting, uh, but they had, they had Vecna weakened, um, and I, I, I basically gave him a, a hard choice. He could get away unless they did something seriously profound, and they did. Uh, and so all the character, all the players, just kind of looked at each other across the table and said, "Well, it's been nice knowing you." <laughs> and then pff, they just they lit the match and blew themselves and Vecna to hell. Uh, that 
I was in the Monday night group and we won without killing ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I sort of picture the Monday night group. They're still, you know, they're retired now, sitting around drinking tea, reminiscing yes. about yes. the great old days and yeah. that other party that was yeah, my, never meant to be. Yeah, because ours, we, we won without uh, killing ourselves. And then I think my character went on to be the head of. Yeah. Uh, Actually, the head of the wizard guild that had been hunting him for the entire campaign. Yes. I basically performed a coup <laughs> on the group uh, that had been hunting me, and I became its master. Um, I think, for me, I like to see the end of the campaign resolve the character's arcs. Like, every character has had a journey that they've gone on. They're not the same character they were when they were rolled up at first level, and they've sort of come to a, a satisfying point. But at the same time, Ultimately, it's the players who dictate to a large, to a certain extent, apart from, you know, bad die rolls can thwart them. But uh, I like letting players make the big decisions about where their characters end up or where they, if they don't end up at all. Yeah. Probably one of my favorite ones ever on campaign I ran. And uh, I figured out halfway through the campaign that uh, the player who was uh, playing a uh, warforged artificer really actually wanted to be playing some sort of like computer hacker, like, you know, Gadecker from Shadowrun. So we ended up in the, the final phase of the campaign. The players are battling against the this sort of uh, Lord of Blades type figure. It's really powerful Warforged, but it was an undead Warforged. And I described here, oh, the island that you're traveling to, you realize it's one giant construct that's built with this entire system, this mechanical system with all these interesting things, but it doesn't have a, a living soul in it. And I get to going, oh. But you realize, you know, as you explore it, there's an interface where you can upload. I do it. I put my, I upload my consciousness <laughs> to the thing, right? And, like, <laughs> and that's exactly what he wanted to do. And so and it was actually kind of fun because in the, the final showdown, he, I had him go. We were playing in uh, at, at, a, at a college. Uh, it was the computer science department. So we had the run of a few different uh, conference rooms. And I actually had him go into a different room. So I was running the final thing. I'd go and say, okay, here you are. You're in the system. What do you want to do? And there's like basically, you know, the ice, you know, the, the countermeasures he's battling. And he's changing things in the island. So the players are saying, oh, like a, the door opens. You can go through. They, don't, they didn't realize it was the Warforged player seizing control of mechanisms and changing them and moving them and cutting off things so they, they could eventually defeat the big boss guy. But that to him was like the most, by far the most satisfying <laughs> thing. So and then it ended the campaign. Everyone's, you know, sort of like, oh, what happened? next his was oh i'm the island and i am bringing him this is all i do i'm just this giant awesome computer right and he was very happy i have one end of line yeah yes. exactly yeah. so the uh the funniest or the worst character death i've seen was uh i was running uh an adventure of the players where there's a dungeon complex and they beat up these guys in town who are supplying the monsters in the dungeon with food it was like this cult and so they stole, like, we beat them up, took them out, and they took their wagon because th these guys would deliver supplies. Like, okay, we'll, we'll disguise ourselves as the supply run, uh, and we'll, that's how we'll sneak in. And then as they're, they're, they have this plan, we're going to sneak in, we'll get as far into the complex as we can, and then we'll betray you know, we'll, we'll kill the big bad guy. And as I'm describing, okay, so you're approaching the thing, blah, blah, blah. The guy playing the half-orc barbarian is like, hey, he points to the guy playing the gnome wizard, get in the sack. And everyone, and the guy playing them was like, well, why? And for some reason, everyone else at the table was like, yeah, it's a great idea. You should get in the sack. And I'm like, okay, as a DM, like, I don't know where this is going. And as the wagon approaches the entrance to the dungeon, the half-orc player is like, I pick up the sack with a gnome wizard in it, and I throw it at the ogre, and I rage. And everyone's like, yeah, good plan. And I'm just like, 
So like one TPK later, it's like, what the heck? Why did you guys? I don't know. It just seemed like a good idea at the time, right? <laughs> we had this like. But just the weirdest thing was the, the players just went along with it. They're like, yeah. And he's like, oh, they'd be surprised when the gnome popped out of the sack. And like, it's like you had this entire plan, which was going to work to just like, where the deliver to go kill the big boss. Okay, sure. Just throw the gnome at an ogre and kill everything. So yeah, that was, that was an interesting session. Yeah. I, I, I've had happy campaign endings for the most part uh, when I've DM'd. Uh, my most recent campaign ended after about five years. It was this epic campaign. Uh, players and the characters were choked up. It was very much a kind of, you know, I'll always love you, Frodo, kind of, kind of <laughs> ending. But, but my, and as much as I like those endings, I think still my favorite end to any campaign I've ever run, and the players who are in it still remember it and talk about it darkly, uh, it was one of the many Ravenloft games I've run where a big part of the story was the group throughout kept meeting uh, Petrina Velikovna, who is uh, a, a ghostly wizardress who even appears in Curse of Strahd, and she's from the original I-6. And she kept, throughout the campaign, planting this seed in the, in the party's mind that Strahd von Zarevich was somehow this tragic figure whom they should try to help. Now, she was just messing with them. And she just messed with them over and over and over again. And I had no idea how effective she had been. Because I thought, oh, of course they're going to see through this. Of course they're going to see that this, this witch is just messing with them. They get to the final encounter with Strahd. He bursts out of his coffin. The ranger, with his, his bow trained on Strahd, says, oh, Guys, I think we should listen to her and help him. <laughs> and so they hesitate. And they hesitate. Strahd doesn't hesitate. Drops one of them in the first round. The cleric, without healing or anything, immediately flees. <laughs> <laughs> and with the cleric, who is their only healer, running out, and the ranger still saying, well, I, I think, guys, if we just need to talk to him... <laughs> It turned into a complete bloodbath with one of them a vampire in the end, everyone else dead except for the cleric, and how I, how I closed the campaign, basically as, as the curtain fell, described it, and the cleric who had betrayed his friends spent the rest of his days gibbering naked in the woods. And that was how the campaign ended. <laughs> I run a, a local hobby shop twice a week, and I notice a lot that with not having my choice of the same players each week or having knowing what players come to the table, we'll get a mix of so-and-so, oh, NPC, tells me the quest, I go kill that thing, game over, I had fun. And then you have the other players who, I don't care about the combat rules, I just want to role play, tell the story, and yes, okay, I understand the story does D6, or they, they just really care about the storytelling. So how do you guys, when you DM, combine those two aspects to make both players happy and then... They have to balance it out in the game, and how do you guys, as designers, try to figure out a way to balance it so that a table can be just rules light, okay, tell the story, and then, or, oh, you guys want to play a war game, here's a war game set in D&D. Well, we, we designed the system up front to be as lean as possible. This is why the, the core rules, uh, it, if, you, if you push away class abilities and spells and everything else, and you just zero in on the basic rules of the game, they're actually quite simple. 
And we did that because we wanted uh, people with any kind of play style to be able to come to the same table and play the game together. Uh, now, through class features and whatnot, you can pile on these different experiences, and you'll notice that actually many of the class features and other elements of the game cater to these different player types. There are some that are more role-playing oriented, there are others that are very tactical. But the, at the end of the day, at least uh, when I'm DMing, uh, in addition to having just the design of the game itself serving these different play styles, I am constantly just tracking how are my players reacting to what I'm doing. Uh, if I, I'm, I'm constantly looking my players in the eye and seeing, did they enjoy that? You know, I'm, it's a, this ongoing dialogue as I DM in my mind with myself. Did that make them smile? Did that land like a thud? Oh, that, that, okay, that totally blew. I'm not doing that again. Oh, they really like that. Okay, I'm going to do more of that. Oh, I did too much of it. Now I'll do this other thing. So I'm con constantly basically recalibrating uh, uh, as, as I go through. Um, because for me, the, that moment-by-moment -moment enjoyment is far more important than anything I prepped in advance. So even if I prepped, like, all right, this, this, today's session is going to be this, you know, this battle fantasia. It's just going to be blood and swords and spells. I might get to the table and realize, nope. Everyone, they wanted to talk. They wanted to talk to all the people that they were going to fight, in which case I will very quickly come up with names for all those people who were just, you know, mercenary one, mercenary two, <laughs> mercenary three. All right, they all now have names. They all have personalities. And uh, I will toss what I prepped. Uh, the instant I get any sense that what I prepped is not going to match up with what the particular players in front of me are going to enjoy. And that, that for me is often one of the most important rules as a DM is be ready to toss your prep uh, the moment you realize this is not going to land. Uh, it's not going to land well. Uh, which for me, what I'm going for is not I got through the thing I prepped. It's I got enough smiles. And everyone at the end, they enjoyed it. Yeah, if you're lucky, you'll be able to use what you prep the following week. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yes, and I constantly recycle. The yeah. stuff I toss... Uh, I'll try to use it the next week or the week after that or the week after that or yeah. three campaigns after that. Uh, it, for me, I never throw it out forever. Yeah. It's one of the things actually like uh, you did in Storm King's Thunder is like you giving names to some of the random goblins or talking mm -hmm. a little bit about the relationships between monsters. Yeah. I think there's one of the – I think it's the third, the third adventure for the, the first to fifth level thing. It talks about how there are these goblins with these ogres and the goblins have been bullying the ogres. So when I when I ran it, the player some of the players wanted to fight, but some of the players were like you know obviously more into the role play. I could play up. Oh, the ogres look really reluctant. The goblins are throwing rocks at them to get them to fight. So some of the oh some of the players seized on that and said oh well let's try I'm going to try talking to the ogre. I want to try to convince it to surrender or that you know or I'm going to kill the goblins first and then oh like when we killed off the goblins the ogres stopped fighting and they just kind of started cowering, which is kind of funny. Why are these ogres these big tough guys? so bullied and cowed and that led to some fun role playing of like oh you know what what is it oh the goblin chief's really scary and big or you know i think the, the ogres were afraid of fire that was the thing so the goblins would use you know fire to, to to intimidate them and so you can kind of find some ways that's why i think especially if you're thinking of if you're designing stuff having combat encounters with a lot of like smaller monsters are good because then you can kind of pair off like well you can have your hack and slashers killing a bunch of goblins then you can have a couple goblins who may be there for role play or some other monster so each player can kind of find their fun thing within the context of that moment. So. Yeah, I, it, it, 
with that in mind, and particularly because some of my longstanding players in my home game are heavy role players, I make sure that even when combat is happening, someone is talking. Yeah, like the, exactly. Like yeah. the monsters are often monologuing, you know, or or even if it's a creature that can't speak, it has some very distinctive way it's grunting or something funny happens. Uh, I mean, that's part of the beauty of D&D is you can do it all at the same time. Yeah. So even in the midst of a battle, you can have uh, a villain cracking jokes or telling way too much of their plan uh, to, the, yeah. to the heroes. Or just yeah. yelling insults at the characters. Yeah, yelling right. insults. Or if you think of like the party of goblins that the adventurers encounter is actually just like another player party. Mm-hmm. And so they have all the same dysfunctions and arguments. And one of them will just randomly run away. No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> After the first round when the battle doesn't go as they planned it would. Um, I, I just think of the monsters like they are the heroes in their own adventure. Yeah. This is one of my favorite moments of playing. I was running a low-level adventure with kobolds, and the, the party's fighter had just gotten a magic sword, and he got dropped. And I said, okay, well, you fall to the ground, and your sword clatters out of your hands, and oh, it's the kobold's turn. Oh, the kobolds grab the magic sword and run off. Go, yay, treasure! <laughs> and that really changed the complexion of that adventure. Now it went from, like, exploring a dungeon to get my effing sword back. <laughs> 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 so yeah, just little things like that can really change things up. Yeah. I got a question. Do you guys have any, um, have you considered licensing any of the other settings like Eberron to, uh, whether it be not exclusive to um, other parties to publish and put out? Yeah, so we've added uh, Ravenloft to the DM's Guild. So if you have any Ravenloft stuff you want to do, you can do it through the Guild. And that's kind of the approach we're thinking about, that like you know, for the settings, we, we kind of want to have first uh, pass at them, do it in official product, and then open it up either through a license or, 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 and or through the DM's Guild. Uh, we've definitely talked about the cosmology and how all the settings fit together. Uh, Morden Kanan shows up in Curse of Strahd. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, spoiler. The uh, And so we're definitely thinking about how those characters all fit together. We've actually had some pretty extensive conversations about, like, how does Eberron fit into the cosmology? Mm-hmm. How does Dark Sun fit into it? How do you explain these settings, these wildly different base settings, but still existing with the same cosmos? Yeah. So and, the, there may have been some diagrams drawn and some theorizing happening about how that all fits together. And, and, and as was mentioned earlier in this panel, if you want a hint about how we view all of the settings, look at the core books. Uh, we talk about the multiverse and uh, the different settings on the first and second page of the player's handbook introduction. Um, it's, I'm, I'm, often, I, I, I'm often fascinated when people say, oh, how come the other settings aren't in uh, fifth edition? Like they're right there on the first page in, in second page of the player's handbook's introduction. And that Basically, you will find the seeds of our roadmap uh, in in those books. Yeah, yeah, it's all there. When, uh, when partners come to us uh, interested in working on stuff, we have conversations with them um, to fig- and sometimes they they want to do a, a certain world or they want to to tap into a certain style of play or whatever. And in the course of those conversations, uh, they're always framed from the sense of what's what's good for the story going forward, what's good for the community going forward. Um, we want to make sure that in working with these partners, they're putting their resources in the best possible place and we're putting our resources in the best possible place. Uh, let's just say we never rule anything out. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're very open-minded about where we go next, but we do it with a lot of thought and we do it in collaboration. 
So um, I think we're at the end, but I want to throw in one little thing because we have everything lined up for Monday, right? For oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually did the final approval oh, last excellent. night. All right. So one little announcement to get a little preview. Uh, Anarth Arcana is getting thrown into overdrive. So uh, Monday, you're going to see a drop for the some new Barbarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, three, three new Barbarian subclasses. Three new Barbarian subclasses. So that's Monday. Then the following Monday, you're going to see some more content. And then the Monday after that, and the Monday after that. So for the next few months, uh, Unearthed Arcana, because I'm crazy and love working too much, uh, and so does Jeremy, uh, and so does Chris, uh, you're going to see weekly Unearthed Arcana drops and much more aggressive uh, surveying. I have no idea what that might mean for future products. So. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's just something we just felt like doing. We were bored at work. D&D's doing so well, we have nothing to do. And, so we're like, oh, let's just make up some new subclasses. Why not? And, and you'll, see, you'll see in the installment that goes up on Monday that uh, during this unusual push, uh, Mike and I will be working on Unearthed Arcana together. And so because of that, uh, the save, Sage Advice column is going to be on hold for a few months. Uh, yeah. This is a temporary hold. It will definitely come back. But uh, I am putting that on hold so that Mike and I can work together on coming out with uh, Unearthed Arcana uh, just about every week. Yes, but every week you'll be seeing uh, one class per week till we've hit all our classes. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and even beyond that. Even beyond that. Yeah. <laughs> But I have no idea what that might mean for future stuff. I mean, yeah. Really nice, so. <laughs> this, this is just us goofing around. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. I uh, hope you enjoy your convention. Thank you.